So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and 5. We're going to read the last part of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5. It's unfortunate, it's been helpful to have chapter breaks. Whoever put chapter breaks in the Bible uh, hundreds of years ago, those are helpful so that it makes it easier to find passages, but they're also at times, uh, they cause troubles because what happens is we usually stop at a chapter break when Paul or somebody who's writing the letter didn't stop there. So we're going to kind of play with this a little bit. We're going to read starting at chapter 4 and verse 20, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 5 and verse 11. So Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 20 through 5, 11. I'm going to ask you to join me uh, out of reverence for the reading of God's word as I read. Please stand. So Romans 4, beginning at verse 20, Paul is talking about Abraham and how Roman, uh, Genesis 15, 6 was, uh, his faith was accounted to him. He believed God it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now he's talking about it. Verse 20, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. But the words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also we have, have, have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus, you who are the way, the truth, and the life, the only way we can have access to the Father. Make the way clearer to us this evening that we may lift up our hearts in gratitude. Amen. You may be seated. So we're doing a series in the evening called Duplex Gratia, Double Grace or Twofold Benefit. The first part deals with justification for the first four weeks. We started two weeks ago, and then the last part will be on sanctification for three weeks. And so our evening series is drawing on John Calvin and his important statement in the Institutes. And you have this statement in your sermon notes on the back of the worship guide at the top. I read it two weeks ago. I'm going to read it again. Calvin wrote, Christ given to us by the kindness of God is apprehended and possessed by faith 
by means of which we obtain, in particular, a duplex gratia, a twofold benefit. First, being reconciled by the righteousness of Christ, God becomes, instead of a judge, an indulgent father. And secondly, being sanctified by his spirit, we aspire to integrity and purity of life. End of quotation. So we're doing this, remember, we're doing this for two reasons, two major reasons. First off, to distinguish between justification and sanctification, but not to separate them, okay? We must distinguish them, but not separate them. I'm actually stealing that concept from Calvin and his works he wrote on the, the sacraments. We can distinguish, but not separate. So separate. So we're, going to dis- we're distinguishing, but not separating justification and sanctification. But secondly, to help build our appreciation why the recovery of this twofold benefit was what fueled much of the Reformation. And so last time, two weeks ago, we looked at what, what uh, to look, we looked at what justification is, and tonight we're going to be thinking about the when of justification. And the paradigm we're going to use is one that you've probably heard before, the already but not yet. Okay, so we're going to use that kind of structure for our sermon outline, and you can see that in your sermon notes, the already but the not yet. So the already, if you look at chapter 5, 1 through 11, you can't miss it. We're absolutely correct, as we did two weeks ago, to describe justification um, as a judicial act. Now I'm paraphrasing uh, J.I. Packer. As a judicial act of God personally involved in pardoning sinners, accepting us as just, and so putting permanently right our previously estranged relationship with God. And that this justifying sentence is God's own gift of righteousness, his own bestowal of a status of acceptance for Jesus' sake. He's placing on us Jesus' own reputation before him. And now what we need to see is when justification happens. And so as you look at Romans 5, 1 through 11, it becomes really clear that it is an already accomplished action, if you will. So you have to follow the language, the tense, the verb tenses, have been, we have, has been, and have now. So you look back through it, and notice how Paul launches in chapter 1, therefore since we have been justified, that past tense, we have, present, past, present, we have peace with God, uh, through him we have also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, and we, uh, and so forth. It just keeps going all the way through this passage. This have been, this have been. Um, we have hope uh, that does not disappoint us, right? It's already, been, he's already, it's already been given to us because the Holy Spirit has been given to us, verse 5. Um, verse 8, God shows his love for us, and while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Etc. Verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be, etc. And it just goes th- that way. So you, you can't miss the already aspect of justification. This already done to us, done for us, done outside of us, done without us accomplishment. It's all, if you notice, you read chapter 5, you can't miss. God did all this, right? He didn't ask us to do things to get him to do it. He did all this 
to us, for us, outside of us, and without us, without us initiating it. And so this done to us, done for us, done outside of us, done out, uh, without us accomplishment is what settled Martin Luther's heart many years ago, back in the 1500s. There he was, Martin Luther, in an environment that put so much emphasis on pursuing the personal quality of justice, of becoming just. Now, that was one of the seven classic virtues, right? There's seven virtues, four came from the pagans, and they got taken over by the Christians, and then there was faith, hope, and love. But justice was one of those virtues, and there was so much emphasis on actually pursuing and attaining that quality of justice, of becoming just by following these 15 steps or whatever. I just threw in an arbitrary number, okay? By following these so many steps, by going on this many pilgrimages, by having that many merits added to your resume so that they outnumber your demerits and so forth. There was so much emphasis on accomplishing, accomplishing, and accomplishing and so little to almost no sense of assurance of being loved. All of that to gain love, it seemed. All of that to gain acceptance with God and almost no assurance or any assurance of actually being accepted by God or loved. It was in that environment Luther grew up in and then comes Romans 5, this soul-satisfying declaration of God and Jesus Christ and came in and it turned Luther's world upside down and inside out. Or maybe you could say right side up and outside in, whatever it was. Anyways, it just turned it all around. And so that already aspect, we have to affirm it, we have to agree with it, we have to embrace it, and it should lift our hearts with great joy. I mean, think about it. Done for us, done to us, done outside of us, done without us. Wow, God did this, he initiated this, we have this, not because we did anything good, but because he did it all. Wow, right? So we should be excited about that. So the already part is very important. Nevertheless, there is a huge important not yet of justification, and Paul refers to it uh, to it some in our passage. So go back to chapter 4 then, starting at verse 20. And then we'll go back again to chapter 5 and we'll look at verse 9 and 10 in just a second. It's all of this will be, shall be language. So look, if you will, at verse, um, verse 24. So the, the statement, it is counted to him, Paul says, it was not written for Abraham's sake alone, for ours also. And then it says what? It will be counted to us. Do you hear the future tense? It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I just need to emphasize this a moment. As good Protestants, we often focus almost solely in our evangelism on the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is nothing and meaningless if it isn't for the resurrection. And so notice how Paul puts it, that he was raised for our justification. Later he'll talk about the death being for our justification. That's true because of the resurrection. So we have to have just as much enthusiasm and just as much excitement about the resurrection. And once you do, you've already begun to move into the not yet. 
Because the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of the new heavens and new earth. This is the beginning of the new creation that we will finally fully enter into one day when Jesus returns. Do you get it? So there's already a connection right there in Paul's language that there's a future, not yet aspect of justification. That's why he says it will be counted to us. And so you hear it again when you get down to chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. So look down at chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. You'll hear the already part at the first of each of these verses. And then there's this not yet aspect. So verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's also part of justification. Being actually saved from the wrath of God. And notice that Paul puts it in the future. On the day of judgment, when we will, when we would justly deserve God's wrath, we will be saved from that wrath. There's a not yet part of justification. The same in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Remember, Calvin brings reconciliation in as part of justification. We were reconciled, we were, past tense, the already, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Saved by Jesus' resurrection. So hopefully you hear that, that not yet part of justification. Now that leaves us honestly scratching our shiny little heads. It's odd. There really is this not yet aspect, this future feature, this day of judgment characteristic of justification, and it has enormous implications for us. So here what I'm going to do right this moment is I'm going to address the not yet and then toward the end of the sermon, I'm going to actually speak to some, some of the sizable implications. So the place we need to go to get, a set, to get a fuller sense of the not yet part, along with the already, I want you to go to Romans 8. So just flip on over to Romans 8. And we're going to start reading somewhere around verse 12, and we're going to end up and finally end somewhere around verse 23. Um, but we're going to do it in two ways. I think this will immensely aid us in our endeavor here. Um, I'm going to come at this. Uh, at, uh, I'm going to come at this following two parallel paths, both of which are already and not yet. So that way we, we get this, a fuller sense of this. So the first trail we're going to walk down is adoption. So look, starting down at verse 14. Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, etc., so there's this already aspect of adoption, which, by the way, is a very legal um, quality. If you didn't know that, adoptions are almost always very legal. So here's this already aspect. We have now the spirit of adoption by which we, whom we cry out, Abba, Father, and so forth. But then you drop over to verse 23, and notice as Paul moves into talking about the new heavens and new earth, and how all creation is groaning, longing for the day when the new heavens and new earth comes, 
then Paul says this in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? Adoption. It says, oh, wait a minute, Paul. You said we already had the spirit of adoption. We're already sons of God. That's the already aspect. There's still the not yet. Okay, we have, we eagerly wait for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The best way I can put it is the adoption, the one adoption I got to actually be a part of and see. There was a family when we were in Midland. It was a, a family who had lots of little foster kids. The Waltons know who I'm talking about. The, they had lots of little foster kids, but there was this one little bundle of kids that were related to each other that they got, and they began treating them like their own kids. I mean, they started talking about uh, Mrs. Jones was called Mama Jones, you know, and Daddy Jones, right? And, and they, they had the kids call them that. They'd already adopted them in their hearts and already adopted them in their actions. But the day that it became legal was the big day. And that was in the family court. And the judge said he saved the adoption from the end of family court because all the rest of the day was a train wreck, you know. And so he comes to the very end and he can't wait for the adoption. And so he goes through this whole legal beagle process. You got a court reporter in there. You got lawyers in there. You got social workers in there. And then at the end, the judge says, um, he signs the papers and he stamps them and then he uses a gavel or something and he says, and I now declare that these kids are Joneses. Woo! Right? So there was the already aspect. They already were being the kids of the Joneses. And then there was the not yet part. That big, public, legal, heart-rending, warm-hearted declaration that they were adopted. Do you get it? That's what Paul's driving at here. We already are the children of God, but the day of judgment is when God openly acknowledges us as his kids for everyone to know and see. Yes! Okay. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's what he's driving at here. The same when it comes to glorification. So we're going to go back now. We're going to start at verse 17. I'm going to just kind of work our way through three verses, 17, 21, and 30. So verse 17, Paul says, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So he's talking in a future tense here. We'll one day be glorified with him. And so then in verse 21, he says the same thing, he, something similar. He says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So now Paul is emphasizing the not yet part of glorification. But then you get down to verse uh, 30. Drop down to verse 30. 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now notice the verb tense is here. Those whom he predestined, what tense is that? Past tense. He also called. What tense is that? And those whom he called, he also justified. What tense is that? Past. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. We've already begun to enter into that glorification. Paul even says in um, 2 Thessalonians, it just came to my mind, 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, he talks about how that's part of the aim of the gospel. When he says, 
In chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 to 14, he says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We often think of salvation as being fire insurance. No, it's for us to actually obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul's emphasizing that there, here, that one day we will be glorified, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he uses the past tense. We have an already part of glorification. Because we're united to Christ who is glorified, we're already beginning to participate in the honor of Christ, the glory of Christ. That's usually what glorification means, not necessarily bright lights, but the honor of someone. And so there it is. There's that already and that not yet of adoption and glorification. So that that trait of already and not yet also applies to justification. And so justification, like adoption and glorification, is a day of judgment category and status. Justification, just like adoption and glorification, are a day of judgment category and status. It is a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells reality, brought backward, if you will, or forward, however you want to look at it, but brought back to us, brought back into the past. Think about Romans 4.25, brought back to the past at the cross and the empty tomb. He was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. It's brought back to 30 AD or 33 to that, but it's also brought into our present, personally into our present. Chapter 5, Romans 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified, we have peace with God. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson puts it in his uh, book on the Holy Spirit. And you don't have this quotation because I didn't have enough space in the sermon yet, so... Quote, in the New Testament, by contrast, there remains a yet-to-be-consummated aspect to every facet of salvation. I mean, it's a very important statement. There is, all, there is, there is this yet-to-be-consummated aspect to every facet of salvation. While it requires carefully guarded statement, it is also true that justification is an already accomplished and perfect reality, but awaits its consummation. Or to put it more clearly, in the words of J.I. Packer, and you have this in your sermon notes, quote, God's justifying decision is the judgment of the last day. If you don't get excited right now, I don't know what's going to happen here. So here we go. It's the justifying decision of the judgment of the last day declaring where we shall spend eternity brought forward into the present and pronounced here and now. It is the last, it is, it is the last judgment that will ever be passed on our destiny. Is that exciting? It's the last judgment that will ever be pronounced on our destiny. God will never go back on it however much Satan may appeal God's verdict. To be justified is to be eternally secured. That's great news. And that's part of what fueled the Reformation because the reigning church or the main church at the time, the Roman church, never could give assurance of pardon in the end. You could never have any assurance that would sustain you. 
And here was Luther reading all of this and going, bah, 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 bah. and it, it rocked his world as it should rock ours. All right. So let me give you an illustration of this already but not yet feature of justification from the life of our Lord. And this hit me uh, probably Tuesday. It was in my devotional reading in the morning, and it hit me. It was perfect. So we'll have to go back to Luke chapter 7. So if you go back there, you, you remember this story well. Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus over to the house. Uh, it's uh, Luke 6, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 7, verse 36 to the end through 50. Simon invites Jesus over to the house. He's a Pharisee. They're all reclining at the table, and in the door comes this woman. And she comes up to Jesus' feet, and she begins weeping on his feet and washing his feet with her hair. And then she's anointing, she's kissing his feet, and she's anointing them with this ointment she's brought in. And there's Simon in his official judgmental judiciary capacity. Well, if this fellow knew what kind of a woman she was, he was really a prophet. He, he would have known that this woman was one of those kind of women. Whatever that was, we don't know. And so he's judging. He's pronouncing a judgment. And so then Jesus tells an interesting story. And you know this story. It starts in verse 41. So Jesus is speaking. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 days wages. It's 500 denarii. 500 days wages and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, the moneylender canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon. So think about it. what Jesus is arguing is that something has already happened to this woman. That's why she's doing what she's doing. Something has already happened to this woman that's why she's doing what she's doing. And so he says, turning to the woman, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she, in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, by the evidence, by her actions, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, Simon, <coughs> loves little. Now stop there for a moment. Somehow, we don't know how, we don't know if Jesus had talked to her before or whatever. We don't know any of that stuff. But he's basing his observation on what he's seeing from her. She's already been forgiven. That's why she's doing what she's doing. She has an already aspect of this. But then notice what happens next. Verse 48, and he said to her, he declares to her, before judges, your sins are forgiven. Of course, those at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that has forgiven, uh, who even forgives sins? And then he says again to the woman, a public declaration. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think it's the best picture ever of justifications already and not yet aspect. We already now begin to experience what justification is, and we're waiting for the day when publicly our Lord Jesus Christ openly acknowledges us and acquits us before all. And that, that's, that's exciting. That's what we're waiting for. I think Luke 7 is a beautiful picture of justifications already not yet. There you go. Okay. So taking notice then of the already and not yet of justification, 
brings us then to the now what? Now what, Pastor? Good question. I hope to answer some of it. First off, dear friends, justification being in the future is exactly what the Shorter Catechism is pointing at in question and answer 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. At the, that's the, that future verdict. That future verdict has now, though, been brought to us and it wraps us up and it clothes us with Christ crucified for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Which means, secondly, that this is how God sees us for all eternity now. This is how God sees us for all eternity now. Now, even though we must stand before God at the judgment, the day of judgment, 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that. Romans chapter 14, verse 13 tells us that. We must all stand before God at the day of judgment and before Christ and give an account of all of our works and so forth. Even though we must stand before God at the day of judgment to have all of our thoughts, intentions, actions, words, emails, Facebook posts, etc., etc., addressed by God and exposed by Jesus. Yet we know when that day comes, we will not be addressed by one who is our executioner, but by one who is our Father. Or as Calvin says, our indulgent Father. That's beautiful. So what is he doing on the day of judgment? Then he simply disciplines us. It's not condemnation. It's discipline. Who doesn't need discipline? Right? The little correction from a father who loves us. Yes, okay. It's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32, when he's talking about communion. And he says, but when we are judged by God, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. For us, the day of judgment is going to be God's open acknowledgement and discipline that rescues us from the condemnation that we deserve with everybody else. It will be, we'll see it. We'll experience it like we've never experienced it before. Woohoo! I mean, that's exciting. So he will there then openly acknowledge us. I think the writers of the Catechism are referencing adoption in that phrase. He will openly acknowledge us and he will acquit us there's justification, and he will happily make us perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. That's glorification. And so we're already, the scripture is saying, we're already on that flight path, on that path. We're already flying in that flight pattern. We're already cruising in our raft down that channel. Whatever idiom works or imagery works for you, we're already going that way, which then draws us to realize that though life now may appear futile and frustratingly facile and fruitless, though life may appear that way right now, yet it's not that way. As Proverbs says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Or to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul that we read in our call to worship. You can flip it over and look at it. 
after he's talked about the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection with Jesus, then Paul says this, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Though the present moment may feel futile and and facile and frustrating and fruitless and all of that, it actually, because of justification, has great value. You, right now, have great value. What you're doing has some value. Has great value. Does that make sense? Okay. And so it gives us, justification gives us forward, future-oriented value to who we are and what we are doing. What we're doing does matter, which assures us then in our doings. It assures us so that we don't need to go get God's value-laden verdict. We already have it. We don't need to go get God's value-laden verdict. Your boss may tell you that you're the worst employee ever and he's going to fire you next week and you feel like the dumps, but you already have God's value-laden verdict in what you've done and who you are. We, um, so we don't need to go get God's value-laden verdict. We don't need to grab it by our own muscle or machinations and manipulations like the pagans did. Just go read the Iliad and you find out that pagans live for glory. They live to go gain glory. They give to go pile up glory for themselves. We don't need to do that. We're set free from that. We have it already and we are assured it is always ours by the grace of God. And that then frees us frees us up to actually take the risk of loving others, of actually taking the bigger risk of extending value to others, to extend value to others. We're secured in justification. We're secured that we are not in a zero-sum game. What's a zero-sum game? If I give you any value, that detracts from my value because there's only so much value in the world. So I don't know if I want to give Yvonne my value because then it would be less for me. That's a zero-sum game. But because justification is secured, it secures us in our value, we don't have to play that game. We can value others. We can extend to them love and credit and credibility and so forth. That's what it does. We and all God's children win, 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 and win lavishly in the end. You have to put the end on there, okay? But we win, and we win lavishly. And that sets us free from competing with fellow Christians. Competing, trying to get accolades, trying to get praise, trying to get acceptance, trying to get publicity, trying to get whatever. It frees us from competing with fellow Christians. It can freeze us from competing with other churches. We don't have to worry about that. It's not our business. We're freed up from competing with other churches. We're freed up from competing with spouses. I find in most marriage conflicts that the spouses are in competition. They're not, they're not partners. They're busy trying to win the game because they're all about competing with one another because they feel like there's only so much value to go around. No, I've got to have it. No, I've got to have it. No, I've got to have it. We're freed up. You're justified. Let it go. Woo! Where'd that come from? Okay. So we're not out there scrambling, trying to get... God's attention. We're not out there scrambling, trying to, to draw God's fatherly love like we're some neglected children. We're not neglected children. 
And that's the value of knowing the when of justification, the already and the not yet. So there you go. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you so much for what you have given us. How you've wrapped us in the reputation of Jesus. How this is the the declaration, the verdict for all eternity. That you declare us in Christ, right with you because of Christ. And no amount of the devil's lawyering up is going to take it away from us. And so Lord, let us help us to let go of the zero-sum game, to let go, knowing that we have your value-laden verdict already. To not have to be in competition with other churches or other Christians or spouses or anyone else, but to extend value and love to them. Help us to do these things, Lord, because we love you, because you love us. Lord, I pray for this coming week, that as we go, as all go back to work or go wherever they go, that they will remember that you love them, that you have made them right with you. In Jesus' name, amen.